Welcome to Jim Galliano's Building a Better Web Presence podcast. Build something better with less moving parts, less overhead, and less headaches. Hey everyone, this is Jim Galliano, and thanks for joining me for today's podcast episode. So here we are, it's the end of March, and we're getting ready to move into the second quarter of 2022. A quick announcement first. Last week, I released the March issue of the Digital Strategist newsletter, issue number three. And this is what you might call a pet project of mine. Writing a simple monthly newsletter is something I used to do in the past and something that I've been planning on doing kind of on and off for the last several years. But back in January of this year, I finally pulled the trigger, launched the first issue of the Digital Strategist newsletter. And it is a free newsletter. It's available right now over at jimsnewsletter.com. Even if you're not subscribed, you can go ahead and look through the archive and check out the first three issues. All right, let me get into today's topic by asking this question. Have you ever been building something new? It might be a brand new business or something new within an existing business, like a new product, a new service line, or something else, and you have the energy, you have the focus, when suddenly it's like a dark cloud gradually moving overhead, and you start getting this feeling that something just isn't right. I'm talking about things that begin to happen that, strangely enough, have a sense of maybe familiarity about them. And I'm not talking about in a positive way either. Now, keep in mind, in this podcast, I'm committed to the overarching principle of building something that's better in the business world, better for ourselves, better for our families, and better for our clients and our customers. It's all about moving forward. But that said... Our pasts have a way of trying to insert themselves into the present and kind of slow us down from moving full speed ahead. What am I talking about? I'm talking about past failures and the feelings that came with those failures, like what it feels like when you're not able to move past a certain point, the overwhelming frustration, and and sometimes just full-blown anger of not being able to do what it is that you want to do and not being even able to see a light at the end of the tunnel, or not being able to secure more income, not being able to grow and expand, or having to toss the towel in on a project, having to concede defeat. Those moments are not the kind of experiences that many people would willingly sign up for, but yet they are very common. And for some, the disappointment that follows that kind of experience Even though we could argue that the experience of failure is a singular event, but the feelings that come with that disappointment follows them well into the future and has a way of coloring everything that they do. And sometimes they're not even really aware it's happening. You know, if you think a certain way, even if it's harmful to you personally, to your progress, to your growth, if you have a habit of thinking of negative things, and in this context, the negative thing may be a past failure or past mistake, or the feelings of helplessness where you don't know whether you should turn right or left or go up or down. You're just not sure what to do, and no one seems to be able to help you. People allow those thoughts to haunt them, thoughts from their past, and they allow those thoughts and those feelings to define not only who they are, but what they're able to accomplish. And these things can be overwhelming to a lot of people. It's kind of like living life in a loop where 
uh, somehow or another, the person always ends up basically right where they started. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why does everything have to be so hard? Maybe have a few you know, exclamations in there or a few choice words. I'm sure you have. I've said it. I think everyone has. Everyone knows what that feeling is. Some people live with it, I think, more than others. Some people experience more failure than others. But uh, a word of advice here, and it's simply this. Don't let yourself, because you can do something about it, don't let yourself be haunted by past failures. Fate isn't out to get you. And what happened to you in the past isn't happening to you anymore. You know, in all seriousness, I spoke with several women about this topic. These were women who were sexually abused by members of their family. And several of these women that I know went on to have happy, productive lives. And I remember having a serious conversation with one of them about this topic specifically. And she was very open with me about the experience. And I asked, well, how did you get through it? Because I know a lot of people don't get past an experience like this. Uh, I mean, it happens to women and men. It happens to boys and girls. But she added this. She said that she got through the negative experience by telling herself, that's not happening to me anymore. That's what she learned to do. She had to tell herself that as a teenager. When she got into her 20s, she had to remind herself every time she talked about or thought about, I should say, or dwelled on that experience, all of those negative emotions would come flooding back in again. And she would sort of self-talk her way out of it by telling herself, that's not happening anymore. I'm not there. That person isn't here. This is my life, and I'm not going to allow the past to dictate the present. And so she refused to allow herself to be victimized by those memories going forward in perpetuity. She refused to allow that single event to define who she was and who she was going to be going forward. And some people, you know, they have to get over very traumatic personal experiences in their lives. But they all do so, even though they do it in different ways. Sometimes they have help. Uh, sometimes they have counseling. Sometimes with help of friends. Sometimes they pray. But they do so by putting the past in the past and leaving it there. They do so by turning a vivid, colorful memory into basically what amounts to black and white. Now, by comparison, a business failure or a project failure seems really trivial. But the truth is the impact that people experience based on their past failures can really weigh them down when they try to move forward into the future. So it's really important, I believe, to leave the past in the past, but sometimes we have to come to grips with why certain things happened, how they can be avoided in the future, and why we don't have to identify with failure, why we can look forward to what's ahead instead of what we're leaving behind. Now, some people say it's good to fail quickly. That way you can move on to the next thing. But what happens if you do that, but the next thing fails, as does the next and the next, and you end up with a string of failures? And the more I think about this, I suppose it all depends on how you frame the experience. I know, for example, in sports, boxing is a great example of this. I've seen one loss ruin an entire fighter's career while another fighter takes a loss just as a loss, and they're all fighting at the top championship-type levels. Now, it's much easier to see this from the outside 
looking in than it does when you're the, on the inside looking out and you're having all these experiences firsthand. Here's the thing, hindsight is usually 2020. And if you look back at some of your failures, it probably makes a lot of sense why many of them have been in hindsight, a lot more sense than it did at the time. And maybe it helps sometimes to grab a pen and paper and write it down so that you can see the experience for what it is. Matter of fact, if you're sitting around right now listening to this podcast, if you're not driving or walking or doing something else that's mobile, go ahead and grab maybe the back of even an envelope. I know I write on a lot of envelopes lately. I get this junk mail in. Junk mail is great to write notes down, especially on the back of the envelope. But uh, just grab something, get a pen or pencil if you have it, and, and, and just write down what do you think was one of the top failures that you've experienced since you've owned your own business or since you've been in the business world. Now, I can just give you two off the top of my head that I've personally lived through because I don't want you to think that I haven't had my share of failures. In my, own, in my opinion, I've had my share plus. <laughs> <laughs> but, but me, you know, I'm sure there's people who've had more, but I'm also sure there's people who've had less. But one offline project comes to mind. So if I just jot this down, I'm not going to get into the details about it because it is kind of negative. But uh, as I look at it, why did it fail? Well, if I looked at the reasons why I expected it to succeed, I can see those very clearly. But coming to grips with why it failed... I think I would have to say, especially if I'm going to write this down, wrong location was a key. We're talking about a brick and mortar project here, and I tried to have the right business in the wrong location. That was a blunder. I thought at the time I would be able to overcome it in time, but I wasn't able to. Now, another one that comes to mind I'm thinking of, I would have to say that that project failed because I didn't have a solid marketing plan in place at the time. I didn't have really any kind of ad budget. I more or less relied on word of mouth. Plus, also, now that I'm thinking about it, I bit off more than I could probably chew, which is a lot clearer now looking back on it than it was at the time when I was in the midst of it. So these are two different examples just from my own experience of uh, failures. And now I can see, looking back, things a lot clearer than I could, let's say, at the time. So, you know, as I look at things like this, I, I think to myself, I took these failures really personally at the time. Of course, I was younger than I was now, but at the time, I remember feeling like my whole world was falling apart. And one of them I stuck with for a long time before throwing in the towel. It was one of those things where I thought that I could just, like an endurance race, I could outlast what appeared to be bad luck. I'm talking about the location uh, failure, trying to build the right business in the wrong location, bricks and mortar. So as I look at that now, yeah, I didn't realize that at the time. I thought that the product that we were that we had would be enough to overcome the fact that we were in the wrong location and looking back a few of the people that came in i do remember them making little comments like oh i wish you were over here in this part of the town i wish you were located in a different spot and so yeah the signs were all there i just did not take them to heart so, and yeah, I did take it personally. I felt like I should have seen what I didn't see, even though I didn't realize what that was until some time had passed. 
And after a failure like that, I don't know how you feel, but to me, especially for the younger version of me, I mean, it felt like all of the energy was just drained out of me. And on top of that, I had to take some time to rest and then move forward with the next thing. I knew I'd have to move forward again, but I wasn't in a, in a place mentally where I was able to just jump right into the next thing. And I think when you put a little bit of time between yourself and whatever the failure happens to be, and by writing it out on paper so that you can literally see what the problem is, minus that emotional element, it's really helpful. I'm talking about business failures, business setbacks. It's it's not exactly a mystery why things fail when we look at them in hindsight. So the point here is that uh, in your next efforts, you're going to be a little smarter and a little wiser than you were in your previous efforts. You know, it's unfortunate, but there's a lot of lies that people believe because with that failure comes a disappointment. With the disappointment... And one of the worst things is, and for those of you who are married, you'll be able to identify if you're just dating or have a significant other that you haven't been with in a long time. Maybe you can't relate to this now, but maybe one day you will. But sometimes you just don't want your spouse or your other half to cheer you up. In other words, there's something about being miserable that has sort of this addictive quality to it that you just need to ride it out. It's almost like this. I remember one of my uh, one of my pets, my little Minpin. She used to bark when she saw somebody go by, and she had all of this energy, and she would bark. But when the person was out of sight, she would still bark two or three more times. It was almost like she had to get all of the bark out of her before she was done. And sometimes it's like that when you feel annoyed or or depressed about a business failure or you just feel miserable there's some of you there's a part of you that needs to hold on to that misery for just a little bit longer in other words you don't want to be cheered up have you ever been in that place well if if you're married or you have a spouse i think that's one of the things that you need to recognize that sometimes that other person doesn't want to be made happy just quite yet sometimes you just need to let them be alone, have, give them a little bit of time to think things through, and then you can go over there and if they, if they want some support or if they want you to solve a problem. I'm kind of a solving problem person. And then I recognize that problem solving is something that also involves timing because not everybody is in the place where they can get their problems solved yet. They still need to stew a little bit more. They still need to get past that emotional tidal wave, I guess, that they're dealing with. And once they're past that, then they can see things maybe a little more objectively again. But as a result of some of these experiences, a lot of people come out of them with just believing crazy things like they'll never succeed, or they'll always struggle, or they'll never make enough money. And if you ask them logically, well, why do you believe these things? They can't tell you, but they feel like they're the truth. And so these lies are kind of embraced as being the truth. Or they're not talented enough or they're not smart enough or people don't like them. There's always something there. And sometimes I think people would on some level rather believe something like this and then be in the place where they don't have to try again rather than try again and have to go through that emotional, all, all of those negative things that come with failure. And so this was something I think that everybody has to deal with. It's a bigger problem for some people than others. But 
all of this stuff becomes self-fulfilling prophecy when we dwell on the things that just aren't true. Like you'll never succeed. Well, how do you know? Do you see the future? Obviously, if you do nothing and you never try again, yeah, it's a guarantee. Or you'll always struggle. Well, how do you know? Maybe you'll meet the right person. You'll be in the right place at the right time. How do you know you'll always struggle? You'll never make enough money. Again, you know, are you seeing into the future? Do you see something that no one else sees? Or people don't like you. Did you take a poll? Or is that just something that you came up with on your own? So none of these things have to be true about your life. None of these things have to be true about your business or even in your relationships. You can always reboot projects and you can make the adjustments according to the lessons that you learned, those hard-fought lessons that were learned in the trenches. You can change the focus or the messaging of your business. You can even change the market that you're in. Whatever you do, there's probably dozens of markets out there that that activity or that skill can be used in. And maybe, yes, where you are now, maybe you've taken something as far as it will go in the form that it's currently in. I think that was the main problem with myself. I took something as far as it could go at that location. But because I felt like I didn't have any options... Feelings are something that usually if you feel some, some, some way, you think that that's the truth. Does that make sense? Sometimes people think what they feel is reality is reality. Well, how many times in your life did you feel a certain way about a person the first time that you met them when it turns out that your feelings were wrong? <laughs> your feelings misled you. I mean, right? Anybody who ever got divorced, I think, would probably sit and put their hand up. There's probably quite a few people. But you thought you were with the perfect person. Turns out you weren't. So, yeah, sometimes, a lot of times, maybe most of the times that we, we feel things that are so that just aren't so at all. But maybe you've taken something as far as it will go in the form that it's currently in. And that was the place that I was in. And so I kept pushing and pushing and pushing until I couldn't push anymore. And that was it. Now, the thing is, it's not like we're captains that have to go down with the ship. We don't have to go down with the business. We're more like baseball players. So in other words, baseball player steps up, here comes the pitch. If we're hitting 300 or a little higher, like say 350, we're doing great. Matter of fact, today in modern baseball, it's been written and talked about quite a few times that hitting 400 or over is impossible. So for those of you who aren't you know, baseball statisticians or anything like that, hitting 300 means you're out of 10 pitches, you're connecting with three of them. You're hitting three of them. Getting three hits for every 10 pitches, well, that's, you know, that's less than 500, but in baseball, that's considered good, and I think business is a lot like that. I think if you hit the ball three out of 10 times, I've heard a few old-timers say that if they looked at a lifetime of projects, one out of every seven or one out of every six hit. And sometimes, especially if you're younger and it's your first project, you don't want to be thinking, oh my gosh, I have to go through how many failures to get to a success? Because we don't invest ourselves in a project that feels like a failure. We avoid those. So a lot of times what I think stumbles people so badly is the fact that what felt like it was going to surely succeed failed. And so the, the high, uh, you know, as, as high as you got emotion-wise over believing you were doing the right thing, over believing that this was the product that was going to change everything, to the polar opposite was the drop when it didn't happen that way. I mean, there's so many analogies that we can use here, but the point is in the real world, success in business 
usually seems to come down to a series of adjustments that people make who remain in the game. I'm talking about people who start their own business, not people in the business world in general. There's a lot of people in the business world in general, but people who start a business, business owners, and in the context of the people that we talk about here in this podcast, talking about solopreneurs, freelancers, small business owners, people like that. These are the people who succeed and their success, if you look back at the full timeline, more often than not, now not every time, but we can't say every time about anything anyway, that something happens a certain way. But percentage-wise, most of the successes seem to come from a series of adjustments that people make over time. So sometimes the adjustment is very minor, and sometimes there are a series of several smaller adjustments that when totaled up make a big difference. I've seen people who were in one specific niche for many, many years, and their results were more or less average. And then suddenly out of, I don't know if desperation would be the right word, but maybe lack of ability to do anything else, they saw an opportunity, they took a risk, and they moved their product service focus over into another niche and had a complete breakthrough. I've seen that also. But I'm bringing all this up because for two reasons. Number one is getting back to the principle of don't let your past business failures haunt you. Don't let pictures of the past skew what you're seeing in the present. There's a principle that they use in the military. And last week I was speaking to a military veteran and he was telling me about what it was like to be in West Point and what they studied and which wars they studied. And basically they always study the previous war. And what makes it so difficult is that you have to fight the present war, not the previous war actually out on the field. And what a lot of generals do is they get mired in the past. They get mired based on the principles that they learned during their most formative years, and they're not very flexible, and they're not very open to change. And so we can take those principles that apply to that and bring them over into the business world as well, because this is where we start talking about things like strategy. Strategies have to be flexible. They cannot be rigid. And it happens to marketers also. We market as we did in the past, and then we are uh, frustrated because we no longer see those kinds of results in the future. And is there an age or something like that that this happens? I would say that whatever you learn in your, and this again, it's not 100%, doesn't apply to everyone, but it appears that your most formative years are between, let's say, 20 and 27. As far as business principles, entrepreneurial tolerance to risk and things like that. And those things are pretty well set in there. Because it takes energy and flexibility to be open to change. No one likes change because it brings up too many variables. And when, you, when you're younger, this is just my own opinion, when you're younger, you're more flexible and you're more open to things. You're not really settled in your ways. But to continuously be open and ready for change and anticipating change requires more energy than it does to just settle in your ways and use whatever worked in the past. Matter of fact, uh, a few of my friends who were retiring doctors, uh, one was a surgeon, 
made these comments to me and they said that they felt that looking back at their profession in medicine, that most doctors are at their peak in their 40s and then begin a, a gradual decline. Now this, you know, if your doctor is 50 or 60, that doesn't mean that this happened to them. But this is, again, we're, we're talking in generalities here because they said the physicians that were in their 40s were had enough experience to be able to have an edge over some of the younger doctors, some of the younger surgeons, but they were still young enough to be flexible to new discoveries and to new advances in medicine. Whereas the doctors who were older, and what's unfortunate that in medicine and in many other things, the people that are the most venerated are the oldest, right? Because they have an entire career of successes behind them. But unfortunately, most of them, and I, was, I learned this when I was younger, and so I've been anticipating as I've gone through the decades of my life of getting to the point where I too would, might become rigid or no longer be open to change. And so I think that the online, if the online world has taught us anything, it's this, is that change is a guarantee and it comes much faster in the online world than it does in other fields, especially when you're dealing with something like technology. And this is why I think an evergreen skill such as business and business strategy, marketing, marketing strategy, sales and sales strategy will always be applicable in any age because people never really change. Technologies change, but people never really change. And the things that trigger a person to buy, yes, we may use different language or different words or different colors or different images today. But the underlying architecture of what works and what doesn't really never changes. Now, the technology changes. Keeping up with technology can be exhausting. Matter of fact, if you don't love technology, keeping up with it is, is next to impossible. Simply because there's too much information coming too fast. I know people who are in their 60s and 70s who have spent a lifetime in technology and they still love keeping up with the changes in technology. But those people are outliers. Those aren't the average people. And so what I've tried to do for most of my life is surround myself with people who have been more successful than myself, if possible, in areas that are important to the future of my own business. So while I may not be like a financial wizard when it comes to that area, I've tried to my best to learn from those who are. And, and I apply that to just about everything in life. But I'm bringing this up because no matter what you do, you're going to have failure. And the difference between those who put failure behind them and those who are forever haunted by their failures is, I think, in a large part, up to us. You know, sometimes people think that there's nothing they can do about the situation they're in. And in some ways... In some ways, at least on the surface, I understand the motivation to quit. When I was in my teens, I, I think I quit almost 17 jobs that, that I remember. There might, there might have been more. When the going got tough, I quit. And it wasn't until I got in my 20s that I stuck with anything longer than maybe 10 months. So I mean, I was quitting all the time. And uh, I just, for whatever reason, just refused to apply myself. And then I suddenly realized that 
if I was going to make it in the business world, then I was going to have to develop some type of uh, inner fortitude where if someone said something that I did, didn't like, I'd have to, you know, kind of like swallow, swallow those uh, thoughts, swallow those words, not let them come out of my mouth and, and do what they said, even if I didn't agree with it. Anyway, I don't want you to think I was a problem child. I wasn't really a problem child, but let me just put it this way. I was very unhappy in the working world until I went into business for myself, but it required for me to have a discipline that I didn't have because I took the easy way out so many times. Losing is easy. You just do nothing. Accepting failure as part of your DNA or fate's lot for you is easy because to quit, you don't have to do anything. You just stop working. You just fold your hands and you become a, a victim of not having enough money or not having enough education or not having the right connections or having too small a network or more specifically not being able to build a subscriber list or not being able to put products that look good together or not being able to and we can just go on and on and on by that so what you know what i learned is that you know you can tell what type of thoughts go through your head with regularity by how you feel yeah, I mean, if if you were, and and that's one of the things about what we noticed during the shutdowns, where people were exposed to just bad news, bad news, bad news. Depression rates just soared because people were thinking about COVID nineteen twenty four seven around the clock. People were thinking about sickness and death around the clock, and and you know, people try and justify it. Well, this was a serious situation. Why wouldn't you want to concentrate on it? But, you know, now people are talking about things like mental health and suicide and all of these other things. Of course, what you think about is important. You know, of course, what you meditate on, what you dwell on, what you ponder, whether it's something like that's happening in the world that's negative or an experience that happened to you maybe years ago or or something like that. So, yeah, you absolutely have to put the, the past in the past. It may be easier said than done, but it is doable. And if another person did it, so can you. And if you can put the past in the past, and this is something I had to do uh, with my business life because I wanted to have a certain kind of business and that was the business that was my dream business and so happened that the world changed and the viability of that business model went right out the window. And the negative feelings that came with that, I can't explain to you uh, what that felt like. The money that I had invested in that kind of business to see that all just like just go down the drain. But there were great lessons that I learned. I didn't I didn't see that because the feelings of I guess failure would be the way to put it kind of eclipsed all those little nuggets of truth that I had. I didn't even value those little nuggets until I was able to put them into play later on down the road. OK, so, you know, I said all this. Because, uh, you know, I wanted to really segue now into something positive. You can put the negative past behind you. I really want you to believe that. Even if you have to fake it till you make it. But I want to segue now a little bit because I want to share some thoughts. And I, I shared a little bit about this several months ago on the one true fan concept. This was something that. Kevin Kelly of Wired Magazine made popular in an article back in 2008. And uh, this was his 1,000 true fan concept that he shared. 
And it's really relevant to this topic about failure because sometimes I think some of you believe that unless you have just thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who like your work, who are going to spend money with you, that you're never going to be at that level that you dream that you could maybe sometime or somehow be. I know a lot of people start a service business or a digital business and they add one person at a time. And then when they look at how many more people they would have to add in order to reach that goal, then the thinking is just over the top. Let me just give you a quick example of this. The first time I looked at recurring income for myself, the average person was spending about $60 a month with me. Some were spending a little more, some, some a little less. And I felt like I was working around the clock to keep this small number of people happy with the service I was providing for them. And yes, this was the early days of the digital agency world. The tools that make everything easier today weren't available back then. The concepts and the strategies around the topic of business growth were still very much old school. Basically, I was looking at go big or go home. Everything centered around having a full-time team in place, and that's something that you have to build. And getting that right is no small feat, I can tell you that. Now, I think this is a great place to segue into a concept that I talked about several months back because it goes right along with this. And that's when I talked about the true fan concept that Kevin Kelly of Wired Magazine made popular back in 2008. Now, many people, including myself, started an online business that basically provides a service in our marketplace. And people hire us to do something that either they can't do or they don't have the time to do. And that's how we get started. Most of us just bootstrap our way forward from there. Eventually, however, we begin to struggle with things like time management because business involves a lot of other things besides providing a service. We have to invest time in doing things like sales and marketing, and that includes a whole bunch of activities like networking, social media, getting publicity, and so on. And sooner or later, what happens is we just struggle because juggling each of these activities requires more and more time and energy. And hopefully, at that point, you start to realize that you have to be a bit more strategic in both your thinking and in the plan that you're implementing. And the idea of recurring income then becomes painfully, I should say, obvious. It's something that you really need to do. And that's what I did. I went with web hosting earlier on in my career, and that includes the email to go with the domain. A lot of people today provide web hosting services for clients which do not include email. Personally, I think it's a mistake. More about that at another time. But um, And that became part of my monthly revenue stream. For me, web hosting was mostly an automated revenue stream that I could scale without having a big-time investment needed to under undergird that. So afterwards, when I was finally sold on the solopreneur-style business model, coupled with what I'm going to call low-stress digital products. Not every digital product is what I would call a low-stress digital product. For example, software is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a low-stress digital product. 
a software as a service, many of them also are not low cost digital or low, low stress, I should say, digital products. But when I began to understand how that solopreneur style business model worked, and it took, it was a hard sell for me because I was coming from the school of thought where, of course, bigger is better. Having the need to have a full-time team was a must. It wasn't something that was negotiable. But when I began to see how these solopreneur-style business models were developing over time, I was finally able to see some light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, back to Kevin Kelly, let me talk a little bit about these concepts. Here's a direct quote from Kelly. He writes, To be a successful creator, you don't need millions. You don't need millions of dollars or millions of customers millions of clients, or millions of fans. To make a living as a craftsperson, photographer, musician, designer, author, animator, app maker, entrepreneur, or inventor, you need only 1,000 true fans. And so he goes on in this article to talk about what a true fan is. So there's a difference between what we might call a fan and a super fan. So a true fan or a super fan would fit into that category of the kind of person that whatever you come out with, they're going to purchase. It might be, again, if you're a craftsman, it might be the next piece that you're creating. They may pre-buy it sight unseen. If you're a musician and you're going to be somewhere in person, they're willing to travel hundreds of miles just to see you live. That's the difference between a fan and a super fan. So a lot of us are fans of different products and services and individuals and creators ourselves, but we're not really super fans. In other words, we're not going to get in our cars or we're not going to hop on a plane and make the trip over to see somebody that we really admire. In other cases, we are. I know Lori was a super fan of a futurist, an inventor, and that person happened to fortunately live locally at the time here in Florida. He's since passed on. But I remember making the road trip with her to visit this person, and he was fascinating. I think he was about 98 years old at the time that we met him, and he lived another few years afterwards. But she was just so excited and so happy to meet this person, and I was happy to be part of that experience. But getting a 1,000 customers is a whole lot more feasible than, at least to the average person, than aiming for a million fans. Millions of paying fans or customers just isn't a realistic goal for a lot of people to shoot for, especially when you're first starting out. But a thousand fans is absolutely doable. Now, I know some of you out there, you already have mailing lists. You have more than a thousand people on your mailing list. But if you were honest about it with yourselves, you would say that, well, probably not all of these people are exactly super fans or true fans. Yes, they may be fans of your work. They may be um, friends of yours even, or contemporaries or whatever, but they're not really super fans. So once you get that in, in the back of your mind, the difference between a fan and a super fan, and hey, there's nothing wrong with fans. Not everybody has to be a super fan, but this principle is based on a thousand people truly loving whatever it is that you produce and whatever it is that you do. Now, of course, in the past, for an individual creator, they've had to rely on systems like big publishing houses, and an and intermediary, in other words. So if you were an artist in the past, you would have your art in a specific gallery. Again, if you were an uh, author, you would have a publisher. 
And if you were a creator of some type, maybe your work would appear in retail stores or outlets, but you didn't have a direct connection with your fan base. Now, of course, today in the online world, we can get around all of that. We don't have to have a intermediary in there. And that was one of the other things that he talked about was that in the past, if you didn't go with, let's say, a big publishing house, for example, then the chances of your self-published work getting out there to the masses was slim to none. But today, of course, that entire model has been turned on its head. You don't have to go with a traditional publisher. Now, the concept of a thousand true fans who are willing to spend $100 with you a year, those numbers aren't fixed, of course. $100,000 is a nice amount of money for the average person, depending on where you live. And the numbers are very easy to work with. $100, a thousand people spending $100 with you every year. If you need double that, of course, then that $100 becomes $200. But likewise, maybe some people would be fine with just an extra $50,000 a year. If that's the case, then those 1,000 superfans can be whittled down to 500 superfans. Now, here's the thing. There are a lot of people in this world, billions and billions of people. And for those of you who have been on social media for the last decade or so, we've seen sort of a narrowing down of participation on a lot of platforms. Or we see that what happens is the interest moves from one platform to another. And what happens is if you get established on one platform, let's say LinkedIn, for example, let's say you had a nice group on LinkedIn at one time, but the participation just isn't there anymore. People aren't as involved as they were in the past. You may feel like you're running out of people to market to, or you're running out of people to present your product to because LinkedIn is not doing what it used to do. It's not as productive as it used to be. And we can apply that to anything. We could apply it to Facebook or Twitter or wherever. But when you think like that, I mean, that's kind of crazy when you think about it. <laughs> because according to statistics, the last time I checked, there's approximately two, I believe it's, let's see if I have this written down here. Yeah, there's approximately two million small towns across the entire face of the earth. Now, just think about that for a minute. Two million small towns. If you think about a, um, a social group, maybe, oh, let me just stick with LinkedIn because that's where I started. That's what I mentioned a few moments ago. If you have like 20,000 people in a LinkedIn group or 30,000 people, that's not even a drop in the bucket. Now, you should be happy, if, especially if it's your group, if you have 5, 10, 15, 20,000 more people on it, then, I mean, that is something you should be proud of. It's something that you accomplished. A lot of work goes into creating and maintaining a group of that number of people. But let's face it, in the big scheme of things, that little, that little number compared to the millions and millions and millions of people that are out there who are potential buyers of, a pro of your product and service, that little group is not, it's really insignificant. And I say this not, I hope you don't get mad for me saying this, but I say this because you don't want to limit yourself to where you're at currently. Because wherever we're at currently, it's a small number in the bigger scheme of things. And so there are so many other groups out there that have an interest in what you do and in what you're talking about. You just haven't discovered them yet.
just think about that for a moment. So if you're struggling to build a group on LinkedIn or anywhere else and you feel like there's just not enough people out there that are, that are interested, that's kind of that that statement itself is uh, false, for, no matter how you want to look at it. I mean, even let's just use numbers for a minute. Even if one in every million people, let's take a million people and say that only one person in that million people would be interested in your product or service, that still leaves you with a potential of, let's say, around 7,000 people <laughs> that you can reach in the world with your business. Reach is no longer a problem. It's no longer a barrier. Maybe language is a barrier. I'll give you that. Maybe language is a barrier. But if you speak English, even if English isn't your, your first language, then you're going to be able to reach more people than not. So the concept of reaching a thousand true fans may seem like a big hurdle if you just limit it to your LinkedIn connections or if you just limit it to your Twitter followers or if you just limit it to one platform. But when you take the internet in general, the online world in general, and just the sheer masses of people that are there, surely over the course of the next few years with a concentrated effort, you can find a thousand people using everything that's out there who would have an interest in what you do. And especially if you found your voice, you know what I mean by fi finding your voice? The author has to find their voice, and that's their style. The artist has to find their voice, and that's their style. No matter what type of craftsperson you are, and maybe it would be better to look at yourself as a craftsperson or as an artist. And yeah, we use labels like solopreneur, entrepreneur, but the tendency to hold on to that belief that you need to be a superstar and that you need to find 50 or 100,000 fans in order to make a full-time living, that's just not true. You don't need the big numbers. So what the 1,000 true fan blueprint does is it gives you an alternative path to success. In other words, you don't have to achieve quote-unquote stardom. You don't have to have a platinum bestseller hits or, or blockbuster anything or celebrity status of any kind. All you have to do is have a direct connection with a thousand people. And like I said, if they're willing to spend $200 a year with you, then all you need is 500, but it's an alternative path to success. And I think it's a lot more doable to the average entrepreneur, to the average solopreneur of today. And let me just add on top of those ideas, those thoughts that Kevin Kelly shared in his article, people who are more creative or would consider themselves in the creative class, I'm talking about the artists, writers, designers, and the people out there who enjoy making stuff, they're not traditionally what we would call managerial types of personalities. No, these are the people who thrive when they're involved in the creative process directly. And that's why I think the term solopreneur is so much of a better fit for them than entrepreneur. But they're not in business to simply manage or market it. That's the thing that that kind of individual has to understand. And the realization of that can be a game changer. Because that type of individual, if you're one, then listen closely to what I'm saying. You have a creative process that finds its expression through the work that you do. 
And that's where the true fulfillment is coming in. Yes, it comes from the money, of course. Yes, it comes from growing the business. But the true expression, the thing that really gives you satisfaction is in the work itself. If you remove that from your life, then you're essentially like the fish being removed from water. You're no longer going to thrive. You're just going to begin to waste away. A real life example of this that I saw up close and personal was with Lori. When I met her, she had just opened an art gallery here in town. I'm talking about a fine art gallery, contemporary art, sculptures, and things like that. She had her own work in there that she sold along with other local artists and some very big names. She loves to paint. That is a side of her that if she's not doing it, she doesn't have the same, I don't know if bounce in her step is the right way to put it, but she doesn't have that same satisfaction that she does when she is painting. And matter of fact, if you want to see some of her paintings, the obvious one that I can think of off the top of my head is in my avatar. I have my online avatar is me wearing a red shirt. I'm standing in front of a painting. I have sunglasses on. That's her painting. That's her original work. I've been kind of bugging her for the last several years to do a commission piece for myself, but that's another story for another day. But Lori was the type of person that was able to give me an appreciation for contemporary art and the various styles the way no one else could. And as a creator, she has original pieces that are out there. She sold them for thousands of dollars. But guess what? Not everyone can afford original art. And so what an artist can do to avoid the gallery situation, and a lot of art galleries, I hate to say this, even in the big cities, New York, L.A., they're becoming a thing of the past. More and more artists are taking advantage of the online world and their ability to cut out the middleman, in this case, the art gallery, and have the profits directly come to them. And so if you can't afford back to original art, if you can't afford to buy an original, then you can still buy what's called a clay. And what a clay is, it's a print that's on a canvas. So the original is painting right on the canvas. The clay is one step down, same canvas, but you're printing on the canvas, not paper. And then that canvas is stretched onto a frame. Now, sometimes the artist will sell them just like that. But other times they'll go ahead and do one additional step. They'll add brush strokes, paint stroke strokes on top of that print. And what it does is it gives it a texture and it almost makes it look like the real thing. That's what some forgers do, by the way, in the art world. But then we have the next step down from there and we have the print on a paper version of the artwork that's mounted under glass. Of course, that's the lowest price point. But if we use this approach of only needing a thousand true fans spending a hundred dollars a year with us, then you can see how having your art productized, in this case, it would be in the form of a clay or a print on paper on how you can reach a thousand true fans, people that really enjoy your work, people that maybe if they can't afford an original they're willing to save up their money and so the day will come when they are able to purchase an original or even commission a piece of work. So I've worked with a lot of artists. I know there's that starving artist mentality. I know it crosses over into the digital world where we have graphic designers and people of that nature. But I want you to consider the fact that maybe the business model and not the person in the business has more to do with the success and failure of that business than previously thought. 
I think sometimes when people have failures, they it's very easy to blame yourself and to take full responsibility for things that, let's face it, you don't have control over as much as maybe you think you have control over. But at least with a logical business plan in place, something like this, you're able to multiply your time and get what you create into the hands of more and more people without having to spend a fortune in doing it. So if you're the quote-unquote artist and you've been spending years trying to sell your original work, making a sale here and there, realizing that, okay, well, I can only grow this business so much, so fast, so far, if I have to start from scratch every time, then you take this type of mentality and plug it in and what would you have? You would have the print version of your work. You would have the giclee version of your work. Are you following what I'm saying? So you're certainly not going to, like I said, create, 100,000 originals a year. You're not going to <laughs> build 100,000 websites. I mean, imagine this. Imagine an artist creating 100,000 originals. I mean, I don't think they could do that in a lifetime. But uh, anyway, let me just put the bookmarker in it there. I think I've said enough. Uh, I hope I've given you some encouragement around this topic today. I just think that the days of the talented, starving artist should be a thing of the past. And, you know, just to sum it up, if I had to ask you this question, what type of plan do you think would be easier to execute? One that's designed to attract tens of thousands of people and keep tens of thousands of people happy and engaged month after month after month? Or do you think it would be easier to maybe have a plan that's designed that you don't need more than, let's say, a thousand true fans of your work and you're not limited to one platform to do it? You're not limited to one method to do it. You have the entire world out there with millions upon millions of people who would enjoy your work. They just haven't, they don't know who you are yet. And, and take the steps to find a thousand people. I mean, the energy that it takes to find a thousand fans, a thousand super fans, is a lot less than the energy it would take when you're focusing on 50 or 100,000 or more. Does that make sense? I know in the past, and, and let me just, I'm going to wrap it up with this. I know in the past that I've built uh, and purchased big lists of people, 30,000 or more people that I thought the success would be because I've gotten this message in front of 30,000 people instead of 3,000 people. And that in turn would produce the kind of numbers that I was looking for. And it just didn't happen that way. It just didn't happen that way because there wasn't the connection. There wasn't the relationship between myself and that audience. And knowing what it takes to build a relationship with millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people and to keep that going year in and year out, it's not, I don't want to say that it's not realistic. It can be done online. The tech and everything is there to do it. But the way that society is today, that doesn't really seem like something that would be a recommended option. I mean, there's so much, there are so many easier potential paths that you can choose from than choosing that. Matter of fact, I think a lot of the people that really blow up with huge worldwide popularity, that really wasn't the thing they were focusing on. It happened because other people got involved in the process. But I'm just saying that it's really refreshing to know 
that you don't have to achieve that in order to achieve success. So remember, don't let the failures of the past haunt you, intimidate you, or dictate who you're going to be as you move into your future. We are most certainly entering the age of the solopreneur where you can both enjoy the work and the rewards that come with sticking close to what it is that you're good at. Okay, let's go ahead and put the bookmarker in it there. That's about all for today, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you believe it will help a friend, please do go ahead and share the episode link with them. Share it in the inbox, share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook, wherever. I really do appreciate you sharing episode links and the podcast in general. It really does make it easier for me to reach people who really can benefit from listening to this podcast. That's why I do it, and that's what keeps me charged to keep on coming back week after week after week. So thanks again for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll talk to you later.